Hi everyone. Members of the podcast community got together to formulate a message that I'll share here. I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion in many states. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights, and that's particularly relevant to the interview you're going to hear about covering LGBTQIA issues. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to choice.crd.co. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Thank you. Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Jake Wittick. Jake is a reporter for Block Club Chicago, covering different neighborhoods in the city and LGBTQ issues. He's also the vice president of the Chicago chapter of the NLGJA, which is the Association of LGBTQIA Journalists. And he's part of Block Club, thanks to Report for America, from which we've had many guests. Uh, Hey, Jake, thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for having me. So the first question is, we essentially go down the same path that we would with any of the journalists that we talk to. Can you tell us your journalism origin story? Yeah, I fell into journalism at a very young age. I'm lucky I've never really had to question what I want to do in life. I've just always known this is my path. In junior high, I loved writing. I would write in my journal all the time. I would write short stories. And my school was launching, they called it the writing club. So I joined thinking we'd be writing poetry, short stories, and things like that. But it turned out to actually be our school newspaper, just not very accurately titled. But I loved it. I really clicked right away. I would write little features about like what professors did, not professors, teachers did outside of the classroom. We had one teacher who lived on a farm and like didn't have heating. He made it he heated his home by burning corn, I think it was. So kind of an interesting story. So I I learned from a young age, I loved storytelling and reporting and interviewing people. So I went on to my high school newspaper, my college paper, my city's paper, and now Block Club. That's awesome. All right. So let's etch out your career path. You go from from doing those sorts of projects in school, you go to Columbia College in Chicago. Tell us about that and tell us about your path to your current job. Yeah, so I graduated from Columbia College in 2017. During college, I studied journalism and I worked for the college paper, which was the Columbia Chronicle. I started on the campus news desk covering like administrative issues, budget stuff, and just college wide things. And that evolved into me becoming managing editor, where I ended up writing a little bit more features and arts and culture stuff. So I really got a well rounded education at the Chronicle. And then my last year of school, I took five years in school. So my last year of college, I applied for an internship at the Chicago Sun-Times. It was the summer before that last year, and I got it. I was very grateful. Um, So I worked on the city desk there covering, I was essentially a general assignment reporter. At the time, the Sun-Times staff was smaller than it it should be. I'm sure that's true of any newspaper. But so I, I that's, it, it sucks. But the positive side is as an intern, I got to do a lot. Wherever there were gaps in the paper, they really relied on me to fill them. I was known for turning straw into gold is what they would always say. They would send me to any event, anything like that. And I'd come back with a daily news story or two. So it was a good experience. It was a summer internship, but then no one ever gave me an end date. So summer 
started ending. No one was telling me to leave. I'm also lucky it was a paid internship. So I just kept showing up three days a week, sometimes four. No one was telling me to leave. And then it, but before I knew it, it was September and they had an opening on their breaking news desk, working overnights, covering essentially the police beat. So they were kind of like, Jake's still here. And like, we don't really have a spot to put him. Now we do. So they recruited me for that. So I, I did overnights for about two years. To be honest, got kind of sick of it with the long hours, interviewing people in the worst moments of their lives. It was hard. And plus where I really want to take my career is in the direction of LGBTQ journalism. So I left the breaking news desk and the Sun-Times to freelance. So during that time, I had my anchor gig, which was at Crane's Ad Age magazine in their research center. I was putting together three annual reports, essentially just ranking advertising agencies based on how big they were, the work they put in. It could be a little dry, but I really loved the team there. I had great mentors and just a very supportive environment. So that was my anchor job. And then I freelanced for the Windy City Times and Block Club Chicago around that. And I worked as a barista. So I did a little bit of everything to pay my bills and really hustled. Was doing that for about a year. And then the Sun-Times called me up and they're like, hey, we have an opening for like a part-time position. Would you be interested in coming back? And I was so sick of the hustle of freelancing. It's it's hard. <laughs> you know, I recommend everyone does it. it. Well, maybe if you can, but also maybe not because it can be difficult. So I was like, you know what? It might be nice to have the Sun-Times as my anchor gig. So I ended up back at the Sun-Times doing general assignments again which was great. I was doing that for about seven months. And then I applied for a report for America because they had an opening at the Block Club newsroom, which is where I used to freelance, covering Lakeview and Lincoln Park. And Lakeview includes Boys Town, which is our LGBTQ neighborhood in Chicago. So I was like, this is perfect for me. I applied for it. I got it. And I've been at Block Club ever since. And the primary aspects of the beat are the LGBTQ coverage and hyper-local coverage of these neighborhoods that you just mentioned. And from what I can see, there's a pretty good range of things involved there. Just some of the recent stories you've done, a series of pieces on a robbery and a shooting, the opening and closing of some local businesses, the birth of a lion cub at the local zoo. How would you define what that aspect of the coverage is supposed to be? Yeah, I mean, hyperlocal coverage is interesting because there's really no story that's too small. One day I might be writing a, a bigger story, like about a school opening. And the next day I might be writing about a neighborhood getting like 12 new bike racks. So it, it, there's really no story that's too small. If it matters to someone, then it matters is what my editors say. So anything is really a story. It's fair game. And another thing that's interesting about hyperlocal coverage is the stories you're writing are really going to be shaped by the community you're covering and what their needs are. So my neighborhoods are Lakeview and Lincoln Park, which are two of the more affluent and whiter neighborhoods in Chicago, which is a very segregated city. So I'm covering a lot of developments, new businesses and things like that. Whereas if you go to some South Side neighborhoods that aren't as invested in, there's going to be less developers, there's going to be less businesses and things like that. But what's common is in Chicago, there's people everywhere doing things that make the city amazing and make it better. So there is common threads there, but it really changes depending on your area. Chicago, my favorite city to visit, just for many reasons, the food certainly being one, but the neighborhoods, definitely a, a, a really wide range. How, how immersed in the neighborhoods are you and how do you keep up? Yeah, we're very immersed. It's not required at Block Club, but it's highly encouraged that you live in the neighborhood you cover. So I live in Boys Town, which was always the goal for me since I discovered it existed at a very young age. It's, now I live here and I'm kind of like, okay, now what? But so I live in my neighborhood, which is pretty immersed. And how I keep up, 
I started at the very beginning of the pandemic. So for the first, I'd say like year and a half, two years, it's really just been through social media, relying a lot on the internet to keep up with people. But now that things are a little bit more open, COVID still exists. And it's, there's a lot of COVID here in Chicago at the moment, actually. But I'm able to get out a lot more and it's going to every event I can, going to every art fair, every farmer's market, just meeting the people who make the neighborhoods run. So I'd say face-to-face time and showing my face in the community helps a lot because then people recognize me. They think of me more since they have a face to put to the name and they're more likely to pitch things to me. When I was interviewing reporters who were doing similar jobs a year, year and a half ago, they were speaking about the value of Facebook to them because it it allowed them to keep up with different organizations that they weren't able to get the face-to-face time that you're thankfully now able to get. So just as an example, what does a day in life look like with regards to that sort of coverage? Yeah, it's a very busy job. I get up around 7 a.m. each morning and that first hour, it's my me time. I try not to check my email or my Slack or anything. I cook breakfast, I shower, I just relax. Sometimes I do a little bit of yoga to center myself before the day. And then The first few hours are just a lot of emails, catching up on emails, sending emails, trying to put my feelers out to see what my news of the day is going to be, because I like to have at least one to two stories that I write a day, which can be pretty busy and it's challenging at times. And our pitches have to be sent in to our editors by 10 a.m. So I try and get all my emails and a solid plan for the day by 10 a.m. And then from there, it's going out into the community. When I'm scheduling interviews, I like I like to have them earlier in the day, like, you know, from 10 to noon. And then I'd say noon onward is me writing, still taking those last minute calls as they trickle in. But I try and get as much reporting done as I can early in the day and then spend my afternoons writing. A lot of subway riding to get to places or walking. I know that you can certainly do both in Chicago, right? Yeah, I don't have a car, which I I don't want a car. Good for you. Certainly times it would be. (laughs) But so, yeah, I take the train, the bus everywhere I can. And occasionally I'll Uber, but I try not to because that adds up quickly. Sure. On your website, you link to some of your more in-depth neighborhood pieces. I found one, this was about a year ago, on a local school that was dealing with a number of different issues, parents having problems with AIDS, AIDS, A-I-D-E-S, and student leaders, and, and people who were in charge of leading students. It was a very intense story. There were a lot of different things that were going on. What went into that sort of reporting? Yeah, it all started with a tip that my editor, Dawn Rhodes, got. She's amazing. She's done some education coverage herself. So I think that's probably how she got the tip and passed it on to me. And the tip was that there's a black mother at Inter-American Magnet School who was seven minutes late to pick up her son on the first day back at school for in-person learning because we had been virtual for about a year and a half. And it was after the school district had messed up the bus schedules. So a lot of kids were left without buses. So she was seven minutes late picking up her son and the principal reported her to DCFS, the Department of Child and Family Services. So I interviewed that mother and just got her story and any documents she could send to me, like emails showing the contact she had had with the principal, things like that, letters that went out to parents about the bus routes and any sort of documents that could kind of support her claims. I collected. And then I went to the principal who declined to comment and Chicago public schools leadership who also, it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure they didn't really comment much either. But that's really what went into the story. And then the impact was that I would say through my reporting, but also especially the activism of parents, there were a lot of parents involved in this issue. The principal ended up resigning that school year and they appointed a new one. So there was some change that happened. 
But from that one story, I had multiple parents at Inter-American Magnet School and other schools throughout CPS reach out to me saying, I'm going through something similar. Please help me. Please share my story. I just need someone to talk to. So it, it all started with one tip. And in writing that story from that one tip, it turned into several tips. That's a great lesson in how, as you said, no story is too small. You need to follow up on everything. You follow up on this one and it mushrooms into, into a whole bunch. Um, to take us to the other primary component of your beat, LGBTQ issues, and you've done both comprehensive reporting and keep up with the neighborhood type pieces there. And I want to touch on one piece that had a little more depth to it. This actually was fairly recent. June 1st, the first day of Pride Month, you had an extensive feature on drag, but not drag queens, drag kings. And I'm curious with that piece, because that's somewhat of a, a an unexpected idea to people that may not be, you know, familiar with, with the with the LGBTQ community, how did an idea like that, how did something like that go from idea to completion? Yeah, I mean, I'm personally a big fan of drag. I watch RuPaul's Drag Race, but I'm also a fan of my local drag scene. So I try and go out to drag shows as much as I can. So I'm pretty in tune with the culture here in Chicago. And I've always thought it was weird how shows like RuPaul's Drag Race only feature drag, drag queens, whereas Kings, which are performers that take on more of a why they're excluded from the show. There's another show called Dragula that's a little more alternative. They welcome Kings on it. And I think it makes the show a lot stronger. And every now and then there's conversation in Chicago's drag scene about Kings not having enough opportunities and things like that. So that conversation had kind of been brewing again uh, around May as I was thinking of ideas for Pride Month. And I was like, you know what? This is so stupid that like we have this conversation all the time and drag kings are still overlooked. So I was like, I'm going to write about our drag king scene here in Chicago because it's growing. There's a lot of opportunities for them. And just having my finger on the pulse and stuff like that, that's where I got the idea, I would say. And then I reached out to one of my sources who is a drag king. But they became my source because they had started in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. They had started a protest in Chicago that grew very, very huge. So that's where they became my source. And they were a bit of an activist. They still are, but now they do a lot more drag. So I reached out to them and I told them my idea for the feature. I asked if there was anyone I should speak to and they just shared all their knowledge with me. So that's really how the story came together. It was a fun one to write. It's one of those things where it just, as you just said, it kind of just balloons into something that that's pretty significant and it occurred to me too that i know that in chicago there's block club which is a hyper local neighborhood co coverage and there's what i previously talked to adam rhodes there's the chicago reader which is very intense in coverage of things of that nature i was just wondering had they done anything on it or were you able to i guess kind of beat them to the punch right yeah i guess i was kind of able to beat them to the punch Adam actually left the Chicago Reader about a month ago, and now they're at IRE. Yep. So, but they're they're great. Me and Adam have a great relationship. I'm vice president, and they're president of NLGJA. So, so we'll tip each other off to stories sometimes. Like, hey, I don't have the time for this. Maybe you you do, or right. things like that. Or like one example, I wrote a story about when Chicago police launched an LGBTQ liaison program, and I hadn't done any follow up on it to see how the program was going. I to be honest, was too busy with my neighborhood work. That's one thing I encounter a lot where I, I have to, I have to do my neighborhood work because I have my newsletters that go out. Yep. So my LGBTQ stuff, sometimes I, I put it on the back burner a little bit. 
So what was great in that situation was Adam had the time to follow up and Adam did a really great piece on how that LGBTQ liaison program isn't doing so well. And the lead person quit there. They were down to one officer. So I would say mine and Adam's coverage really balances each other out and we're a good team. Nice. Very nice. So again, there are hyper-local elements to what you're doing. I saw two stories, different in nature, but both on the same thing, local gardens. The opening of AIDS Garden Chicago and another in a town in a southern Illinois town, Pink Tiger Farm. You also just published a local guide to LGBTQ-owned businesses in the city. So I guess, how would you characterize what your coverage of LGBTQ issues in the city is supposed to be? Yeah, I would like to say that my coverage is inclusive and diverse. There's always room to be more diverse. So I'm not going to say I I solved it, you know, but I really try and be as inclusive as possible. I try and shine light on all parts of the LGBTQ community. Oftentimes when I'd say more mainstream news outlets, sometimes, sometimes, especially during Pride Month, parachute into the LGBTQ beat. It's very surface level. It might be focused more on like white cisgender gay men and not as focused on women, non-binary people, trans people, people of color, people of all ability levels. So I really try and diversify that coverage and scratch more than the surface and get deeper and shine light on all parts of the community. Are are those the areas that are specifically undercovered at the moment? Are there any others? I would say definitely that. I, I think the trans community deserves a lot more coverage right now. There's just so many inequities they face. And it's it's just wrong because a lot of the LGBTQ community's rights come from Black trans women who, for example, started the Stonewall riots and have been leading activists in a fight for LGBTQ equality. And there's just so many disparities they face. For example, last year was the deadliest year for transgender people on record in the United States. Murders are at an all-time high. In Chicago, four trans or gender non-conforming people were murdered last year, and I've been writing obituaries for all of them. So has Adam. So it's just a really sad, and there's so many disparities, and I think that we need to be covering that, the disparities in funding, healthcare, social services, anything, just to make their quality of life better and save them from this horrible, deadly violence that they face. For more on this topic, we actually talked to Kim Burns, one of the founding members of the Transgender Journalists Association, a few episodes ago. So if people are listening, that link will be included in the show notes. You mentioned sources a couple of times, in particular with the drag story. How do you develop your sources? Yeah, I kind of touched on this earlier, but getting out in the community as much as possible, making sure people know my face, they see my face, they see me everywhere. I go to every, I try and go to... I'd say I go to every protest that happens in the LGBTQ community. I try and go to every rally. I try and go to as many community events as possible, whether it's a vigil, a protest, a celebration, anything. And that's really where you get story ideas because you hear the community talking, you listen to those speeches, you listen to their conversations, you're having your own conversations with them. And yeah, that's where I build my sources and get story ideas. Lori Lightfoot is the mayor of Chicago. She's the first Black and the first lesbian mayor of the city. What kind of coverage have you done related to her? Yeah, I haven't done that much, to be totally honest. Kelly Bauer does a great job covering a lot of Mayor Lori Lightfoot stuff for Block Club. And at the Sun Times, it was rare that I had to, but I did have an interesting opportunity through NLGJA earlier this month in June. She wanted to do a roundtable discussion with a group of LGBTQ journalists. So we coordinated that. We had about, I I think, a dozen journalists in the room. And she kind of 
gave us a speech about where what she thinks about LGBTQ rights. She talked about how the Roe versus Wade ruling that's pending could set the stage to roll back a lot of LGBTQ rights because the premise of Roe versus Wade is the right to privacy, which is also used to guarantee rights like same-sex marriage or overturn sodomy laws and an other anti-homosexual or anti-trans laws that existed. So it was interesting to hear her perspective on what is the most important issue right now. And then I got a chance to ask her about what her what her government is doing for the trans community, especially in light of these murders that they keep facing. I'd say she could have been a little bit more in depth with her answer. She said that the city's put together a violence plan and it includes the transgender community. I'm gonna do a little bit more digging on that violence plan and what it is. So stay tuned for that. Okay, I was gonna ask my next question. Are there things that you've wanted to cover in this area that you haven't gotten to cover yet? Yeah, I really want to, you know, in the, there was a 20 year period in Chicago where the murders of transgender people were not solved and not a single one. And this isn't a new issue. The murders, you know, I talked about how there were four last year, but it's been every year there's multiples. So the transgender community in Chicago put a lot of pressure on the city and finally they solved one murder. And I think that was in 2018 or 2019. And since then they haven't solved any. Granted, CPD's murder clearance rate in general is very low, so it's hard to say if it's because they're the trans community, but I, I do want to do some digging. I'm going to FOIA for the police reports for every trans person that was murdered in Chicago for the last X amount of years and kind of look into the status of those cases and why or why not they're being solved. Those are That sounds like a highly ambitious project. Certainly good, good luck. Thank um, you. I have good, good editors who will support me through it. Yep. So let's talk about the NLGJA, and you mentioned that your vice president, Adam Rhodes, is the president of the Chicago chapter specifically. Explain what you're working on locally. Yeah, well, the chapter, it's been dormant for a long time. So Adam and I, we stepped into these roles last year, and we have the goal of just re-energizing the chapter. So we're just trying to do as many events as possible, get people back out into the organization. We're trying to boost our membership, also diversify our membership, do more recruiting of people of color, women, and trans people. But late recently, June 11th, we held a pride picnic, which was a huge success. I was scared that no one would show up. Adam had to step down for a little bit because they're a little busy with their new job. So I organized this picnic mostly solo. So I was nervous that it would just flop and no one would show up, but we had about a dozen people who came out. It was just a great atmosphere, great energy. So we had a fun picnic. We're going to look forward to, we're planning like a wine tasting and another picnic with other organizations at the end of the summer. So building community sounds like a priority for you. Yes. Building community is yep. huge. So are there things, whether it be within Chicago or the larger scope as a whole of any nature that are points of emphasis for the NLGJA? Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing right now is that our convention is returning. We've been trying to hold it actually here in Chicago for the last three years, but due to the pandemic, it's gone virtual. So finally, we're going to have it at the Drake. It's going to be September, the weekend of September 10th in Chicago. So we're really just kind of all hands on deck trying to get that organized, make sure that we have a safe and welcoming environment for everyone with a lot of valuable panels and sessions for people to learn from. How can someone that's not a part of the organization help the cause other than things like a journalist in their writing paying specific attention to things like pronouns? 
and things of that sort? What are some other things that can be done? Yeah, I think supporting NLGJ is great. You can find us on nlgja.org or on my local chapter at Chicago, on Twitter at Chicago NLGJA. Paying attention to what we're doing, donating if you have the funds. We're also looking to put forward, put together some seminars on like covering the LGBTQ community more equitably or how to responsibly cover trans issues and trans people. So if you ever, if you think you could ever be covering those issues, come out to our panels. I think it would be great to share that knowledge with the rest of the journalism world. And certainly amplifying the work of other journalists doing this sort of coverage. What would you like these groups? So you're, you're, I'll preface here. You're young. You seem like fairly ambitious, Adam, as well. What would you like these groups to look like a few years from now? Yeah, I'm excited about the possibilities. I want to see us a lot bigger, a lot more active. Maybe, you know, a few years from now, our picnic will have dozens of people rather than just one dozen. And I want to see us doing more to support younger journalists, younger queer journalists in the scene. There's other organizations in Chicago that are a little bit bigger, like AAJ, the Asian American Journalists Association, that um, they fundraise every year for a scholarship so that they can put an Asian student, Asian journalism student, in a newsroom for a few months and pay them. So I would love for NLGJ to grow enough to have our own scholarship initiative. Nice. Moving, segueing slightly here, we've had, I think you are the seventh Report for America guest that I've talked to. And I'm always curious for what advice you would have for others who aspire to participate within that group and how that group has benefited you. Yeah. Well, first it's benefited me greatly. I, I have not had a first, I, excuse me, I would not have had my first full-time job in journalism if it weren't for Report for America. All of my gigs were freelance or part-time up until 2020. And I was starting to get a little disheartened because I just felt like I was ready for a full-time gig. I felt like I had put in several years of work and I had put in, I'd done watchdog stories. I had put in community stories, hyper-local stories. I had a portfolio and nothing was clicking. So finally I got a full-time job thanks to Report for America. So that is just one, I'm grateful for that. Two, they do a lot of trainings and panels. We just had our very first Report for America gathering. So it was great meeting other corpse members. I finally felt like I was part of the program. Uh, Not that I, yeah, I I did. You know, I was doing it during a pandemic. So I just felt like I was on an island and occasionally I'd have these Zoom meetings that I had to do, but this really, it clicked. And we did, there was, I got a lot out of our gathering. There was a great session on trauma journalism and maintaining your mental health as a journalist, which I think is crucial. There were sessions about diversifying newsrooms, which I I took away. I could apply that to my newsrooms and NLGJA. So great sessions. And my best advice for new corpse members is I would say, don't be shy, like build a good relationship with your regional manager. Let them know what you want, where you see your career going, because they will help you. So don't be shy. And when it comes to journalism, don't be afraid to work the phone and get out there as much as possible. Like, I know we're in a pandemic and we have situations where we have to report remotely, but it's just going to be so much stronger anytime you can get on the ground. Everyone that we've talked to from Report for America has been highly impressive, yourself included. Is there a journalist, to to close, is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with, important, not affiliated with, that you would like to salute for their good work? 
Yeah, I really want to su salute the Chicago chapter of AAJA, the Asian American Journalists Association. They have been great friends of Adam and I as we've tried relaunching the Chicago chapter and re-energizing it. Not only do I look to them as a model for what we can be, you know, they have a great newsletter that we, we modeled our newsletter after. We, they do great events. They do a trivia. We did a trivia. So they, they just do a lot of great things. And last summer, we partnered on them with a picnic. It was, such, it was just such a great time meeting their members and mingling. Jessica Kim Cohen, who is their vice president, she is also a tech reporter at Modern Healthcare. She just came out to our picnic on the 11th of June. I plan on going to some of their events, and we're planning another picnic with AAJA, NLGJA, and other organizations later this summer. We have talked to people from AAJA in the past, and we have been impressed by them as well. Jake Wittick, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. Yeah, thank you for having me. Report for America places talented emerging journalists in local newsrooms to report on undercover issues and communities. Their mission is to strengthen our communities and our democracy through local journalism that is truthful, fearless, fair, and smart. For more information, go to reportforamerica.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.